Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room with your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell, interviewing the leading doctors in the country to get insights into the best medical treatments available today. Not everyone has access to the best specialists, but you can advocate for yourself and learn the right questions to ask your doctor and the best possible treatment options. Remember, what you know can make a difference in your health care. Welcome to The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. What if I told you that there was a treatment that could improve your memory, prevent dreaded diseases like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's diseases, maybe even help reverse them? What if I told you this treatment wouldn't even cost you a penny? You probably wouldn't believe me, and I I would understand your disbelief. But I hope one of the unique benefits of listening to this podcast is that you get to hear from the smartest doctors and the best medical researchers who are going to give you the latest and most proven science. No hype. That's not my style. My guest today is Dr. Mark Matson. He is the Chief of Laboratory Neurosciences at the National Institute of Aging in Baltimore. He is a professor of neuroscience at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine He has published more than 450 original research articles and is the most cited neuroscientist in the world. And people have to appreciate that, meaning all the other articles that people publish and present that he is being referenced as really the expert. So with that introduction, I'd like to welcome Dr. Madsen to the podcast. Well, thank you, Dean. One note, I recently retired from my position at the National Institute on Aging, and I'm a part-time professor at Hopkins now, and I'm writing a book and doing some other things. Great. Well, okay, thank you for correcting that, but I think obviously the credentials speak for themselves. Okay, so we're going to jump right into it, and Dr. Matson, what I want to ask you, one of the key concepts in your research, which we will delve into in, in the different aspects, is that fasting is beneficial to our health, particularly our brains. And honestly, I'm only familiar in the recent years about with fasting. I only know really fasting through religious holidays, which I observe a few times a year. And I know I don't really feel so great on those days. So please explain to me and the listeners why fasting is good for our health. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a question that'll probably, you know, can take the whole podcast. But kind of the key thing is that if you eat three meals a day plus snacks, every time you eat the sugar levels, glucose levels in your liver are replenished and you always use that as an energy source first. And what we think is happening with regards to the effects of fasting on health is that when those glucose stores in the liver are depleted, then fats are mobilized and converted to what are called ketones. And these ketones are an energy source for cells But recent findings in my lab and others suggest that the ketones also activate signaling pathways in cells that bolster their resilience and resistance to stress. Okay. So, yes, you mentioned in your book about the ketone metabolism. You know, a lot of people are hearing, I guess we'll have to jump into this now, this ketogenic diet, you know, where people, I don't really believe they're fasting. I think they're just really avoiding, you know, simple sugars to maintain a ketotic state. And I just want to ask you briefly, you know, again, in my training, I did internal medicine and then later on immunology and infectious disease. You know, when we had a patient in the ICU that was in what was called DKA, diabetic ketoacidosis, that was a very bad thing. You know, we 
aggressively treated those patients because we were worried that they would get brain damage. So why is it, if you can explain to me, that having ketones as your primary source of energy I, I, you know, is a good thing? In a healthy person or animal, if you think about it, animals in the wild often have to go extended time periods without food. Right. A wolf in the wild. And their liver sugar is going to be depleted within... 12 to 24 hours, and then they're going to be using ketones. And the longer they go without getting food, uh, the higher the ketones levels go up to an extent. But they never go high enough, or as high as in this um, medical condition called ketoacidosis. Okay. So, so with fasting, ketone levels increase, but not enough to cause a change in acidity of the blood. That's right. That's a huge problem because when they were acidotic, that that's dangerous for, you know, obviously a person's physiology. Okay. So would you say though, then I guess in a non-diabetic, well, let's say in a non-insulin de- dependent diabetic, this could be a good thing being, uh, you know, somewhat in a ketotic state. Yes, we think so. And one of the main things we found over the last uh, 10 years in my lab is that when, in the fasting state, cells throughout the body and brain go into a stress resistance mode. They clear out their molecular garbage. They, they don't grow, but then when you eat, then protein synthesis goes up and the cells grow. So this switching back and forth between using glucose and using ketones, at least in our animal studies, mm-hmm. can extend lifespan up to 80% in some strains of animals if it started when they're young. Well, you keep on mentioning, I know in your research, that with animals, but they have shown this in humans as well or no? I mean, is this all then, you know, still people just extrapolated this? As far as mechanisms, it's mostly extrapolated. In humans, the randomized controlled studies in humans where you have one group that you put on some intermittent fasting eating regimen. Mm-hmm and another group you put on a controlled diet. Most of those studies have been done in obese people, and and there's been a lot of those, and they pretty much uniformly show that uh, over a period of several weeks to a month, most people can adapt to the new eating pattern, and by that time then, uh, they're no longer hungry and so on, and they lose weight, and. Uh, they're losing fat because during the fasting periods, they're using fat and not glucose. Right. Yeah, I think you were also alluding to earlier to that term autophagy. You were fortunately explaining it to our listeners in not, you know, not complicated terms, like where the cells basically essentially digest or you know, uh, clean out uh, during that fasting phase, so not constantly eating. I think that's an important point because you know people used to. When you know, as a doctor, I you know patients hear all the different things. Oh, you're not supposed to go without eating for more than two or three hours because then you know you have too much of a you know a, a, you know you get too hungry and then you uh, you know will throw off your insulin levels. But it sounds like the trend from the science is that eating less is better. You know, and not only better you yeah. know, for your weight, but better for your your brain and other organs. Yeah, and of course, to a point. Uh, right, right. You know, starvation and still a problem in some places in the world. Yeah. 
You know what's I, I like to throw out different things during the podcast. You know, I don't this was just to me sort of a strange observation, but I I have taken care of Holocaust survivors over the years for various medical problems, but what always struck me was that I guess the ones unfortunately who survived the Holocaust, they tend to live into their what I saw these patients like into their late eighties, nineties. Has there ever been any um studies looking at when you're in a, a starvation period, do you get benefit even years or decades later? And just out of, I'm curious with you know your background and knowledge. Well, in, yeah, in in humans there there are some studies. It's actually studies similar to what you're mentioning that when they looked at Holocaust survivors or people in concentration camps otherwise for several years, and on average, when you look at a a large number of people, they do seem to live longer if they survive that. In animals, it's very clear if you reduce their food intake or put them on intermittent fasting for, say, um, four, five, six months during their life, that will extend their life a little bit, even if they go back to their... So even even years later, they could get benefit from that. That's what I, That's what I find fascinating, really. The anti-aging effect of caloric restriction and intermittent fasting has been known for a long time, and many of the changes that occur in cells throughout the body and brain during normal aging are exacerbated in various diseases, and those include oxidative stress, as you mentioned, autophagy, the cells have problems problem removing garbage, their mitochondria start not working so well during aging and, and and various diseases. And then the other thing is inflammation. In general, inflammation tends to increase during aging. So all of these changes that occur during normal aging are attenuated by caloric restriction and intermittent fasting. And that's probably why it's protecting against diseases, major diseases that kill animals. and we presume at least heart disease and diabetes, maybe cancer as humans. Yes, I've seen some of the research on that. Okay. All right. You are obviously a world-known neuroscientist, and one of the holy grails of brain science is finding a treatment for Alzheimer's. And probably right behind that is Parkinson's disease. I mean, two awful neurological brain diseases that devastate people's lives. And the debate has been for quite some time is Alzheimer's an inflammatory disease, you know, due to those tau proteins or amyloid deposits? Another school of thought is it just poor circulation, like many strokes. In your opinion, why is fasting from a lot of the research that's coming out beneficial to these diseases? Is it from actual the fasting we'll talk about, or is it from just reducing caloric intake? Well, first I should say, preface this answer by saying that there's no direct evidence that people with Alzheimer's or Parkinson's will benefit from intermittent fasting once they already have the disease. There is some evidence, a lot from animals, and then indirect evidence from humans that exercise and moderation in energy intake can reduce one's risk for Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and probably stroke. And and this ties back again to aging, and it turns out that in nerve cells that are vulnerable in patients with Alzheimer's or Parkinson's, there's an exacerbation of 
many normal aging processes that lead to the demise of the nerve cells. And so, again, we go back to the point that intermittent fasting, caloric restriction can seem to slow down the aging process. And in comparison with ad libitum feeding in animals, or the opposite is overeating, which seems to accelerate aging. Okay, I want to try to clarify this because, as I said earlier, when I you know before I introduce you, I don't like hype. I love, I love pushing the envelope for the latest things that might work and that are safe, but I don't like to give people hope when there isn't any. But it seems like there are some reputable neurologists. One of them, Dr. Dale Bredson at UCLA, who's promoting that you know in his clinic that you know he does some kind of special algorithm you know where he he's looking at different risk factors for alzheimer's disease and you know one of the things does involve intermittent or transient fasting which i want to talk to you about in the next few minutes as well as you know obviously reducing stress doing exercise 30 60 minutes that all makes sense but what you're saying again from your research which is quite extensive that you feel that it and a person who's at risk, it could prevent Alzheimer's or delay it, but not reverse it to some degree? I'm saying there there is evidence that it can reduce risk. We do not have the evidence in humans that Alzheimer's patients will benefit from intermittent fasting. I'm just saying the studies haven't been done. He's bringing out the point, I may have to get him on a podcast, that, you know, that, you know, obviously anecdotal cases that they're, you know, they're obviously following cognitive testing, you know, to see how these patients do. And they say they document, you know, improvement in certain cases, which, you know, I think is... Yeah, I think I think what Dr. Bredesen is doing is a reasonable approach. I'm not sure people should be, you know, if someone, you have a family member diagnosed with Alzheimer's that you should get a lot of hope that's going to have a major impact on the progression of the disease. It may have some significant modification that hasn't been established yet. And certainly what he's promoting, everything is science-based. So the composition of the diet and exercise, intermittent fasting, and exercise is probably as important, too, as uh, energy intake. Right, because you you mentioned well, I want that kind of brings me to your research over all the years of something called hormesis. As a physician, I had in in all my training, <laughs> in twenty five years of practice, I had never heard that term until I read your Scientific American article. And maybe you could explain to the listeners what hormesis is. Yeah, hormesis is simply a term used to describe processes in cells and animals whereby when they're exposed to a mild stress, they respond adaptively in ways that help them become resistant to more severe or prolonged stress. Good example is exercise. Uh, During the exercise, it's a stress on your muscles and your heart, but for having done that, the muscle cells in both of those organ systems become stronger and more resilient in the brain. There's evidence that exercise has beneficial effects in promoting synapse formation and enhancing learning and memory. And my lab and others have evidence that intermittent fasting also, uh, by imposing a mild 
stress, but it, it's, a, it's a normal stress from an evolutionary perspective. That mild challenge, I like to use the word challenge instead of stress because it's actually something that if you're hungry, the challenge is to find food and so on, and then you've got to... I like it too. It's more positive than stress always sounds negative. <laughs> As though people always yeah. feel like there's really good stress. There's a good challenge, but not good stress. When yeah. you say intermittent yeah. fasting too, I just want to get your intake on this because there are people who think, does that mean fasting at least 14 hours? Should it be 16 hours? We, we know that whole time-restricted fasting, as it's called, like where you basically skipping a meal. So what I would say is, Right now, as far as the, the human data go, people who are overweight, if they can switch their eating pattern to a regimen where, for example, they constrain or limit the time window each day they eat food to, say, six hours, eight hours, and you can, you can kind of wean yourself onto it if you're normally eating something pretty much morning, night, night midnight, or late snack, then maybe start out 12 hours a day, then 10 and so eight. So build it up. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I've, I found this a little hard to do. I'm, a, I'm a, like a, I'm a, I'm an eater all day long. So I'm definitely taking notice of what this research is showing and trying this out myself. But yeah, I think you do have to gradually build up to do this. Now, Dean, have you, have you tried to stick with it for a month? No, I just start, you know, I really, I, I kind of made a promise to myself. I said, I'm starting to do it now. Does it get easier? I hope. <laughs> it does. And, and we think we have some insight into why that might be. We did some studies in mice recording from nerve cells in their brains and animals that have been adapted to alternate day fasting for two weeks or a month and compared the activity in the neural networks in those animals to animals that had not been on intermittent fasting. What we found is over a period of two weeks to a month, there's an increase in the what's called an inhibitory neurotransmitter called GABA. Right. Mm -hmm. And that neurotransmitter kind of calms things down and reduces anxiety. And so we think that initially, if, you, if you've been eating three meals a day and then you stop eating breakfast, you're going to be hungry, irritable, ornery, maybe have a headache. It will take several weeks to a month. And in our human studies that we've been involved with, it's kind of a similar time frame. Most of the, the subjects, by about a month, that initial hunger and so on in the time periods when they would have normally been eating dissipates. That, that's really important advice, you know, because I, I do feel that way sometimes when I try to do this. So I get a little irritable and I don't like to be for my patients. But it's good to know that it, yeah. I, I'm sure like a lot of things, your body starts to adapt. And especially if this is a healthier way for most of us to try to age within reason, because nobody wants to do like in those biblical times a 40-day fast. It's, you know, it's very challenging. But when you're also saying... yeah, yeah. yeah. When you say alternate day fasting, do you mean that they're completely not eating anything on the alternate day, or is it also, again, just more of a restricted fasting? That's complete fasting in the rats and mice. They have no choice. Right, but, you're in control. <laughs> but if we look at the ketone levels, if you only eat 500 calories, say, well, if you do it two days in a row for sure, the glucose in the liver will be depleted you know, sometime after you eat those 500 calories, maybe within eight hours or so, then the ketones start going up. So the, 
this metabolic switch from glucose to ketones will occur in about 10, 12 hours or so of complete fasting, or if you like eat 500 calories, you know, maybe some point towards the end of the 24 hours, ketones go up. You mentioned, I think when we had a discussion before the podcast, that you don't like the ketogenic diet though. Is that correct? You thought it was too extreme or? Well, personally, I, I don't, but I don't know. It's certainly beneficial for for certain conditions. Epilepsy is well known. That's right. That's right. And the my only concern would be, you know, what are the fats? If, if the person is eating a lot of fish and uh, omega-3s, then it's probably okay. If they're eating a lot of uh, saturated fats and maybe not so good. Right. I, I don't know what you're saying, right? People get, it's almost like the Atkins diet and some other things. So when, when people avoid all simple carbs, you know, carbohydrates, but, and they go too heavy on the meats, you know, it's really a little bit almost unnatural for the body. I always tell my patients, it wasn't like, you know, when they were lucky enough to go out in the wild and kill an animal and get some food, it wasn't like, you know, they had this huge Peter Luger's dinner. I don't know if you're familiar with Peter Luger's down in uh, Maryland, but it's this huge steak place where people order these gigantic steaks, 16 ounces, and, you know, they think they're on a, a good healthy diet because they didn't eat the bread or the potatoes. So... Yeah, I think that's an important point. Well, do, do they look do they look healthy? Not really. No, they do not. <laughs> <laughs> I I look better than them. <laughs> I think. You know, I want to return to something because I think it, again it falls under your research in hormesis. You you mentioned that which makes sense. Eating lots of fruits and vegetables are good for your health, but you brought out an interesting concept. You know, most of us tend to think of eating fruits and vegetables that are really good for us because of all the antioxidants. You instead have made the point that in a lot of these fruits and vegetables, there are natural pesticides, which the plants do to keep the bugs and every insects from, you know, destroying them, that actually stimulates or challenges our immune system. Yeah, so that's exactly right. It turns out that the chemicals in fruits and vegetables that are being shown to be beneficial for health, like sulforaphane and broccoli, right, broccoli or curcumin yeah. and turmeric or um, resveratrol and red grapes, if you take those pure chemicals and put them on your tongue, it's a very, very bitter taste. You would not want to eat much of them. So, But during evolution, it was to herbivores and omnivores' advantage to be able to consume plants that have these very bitter tasting kind of noxious chemicals in them because then they get the other nutrients from the plant. So it turns out that these chemicals, sulforaphane, curcumin, resveratrol, they activate adaptive stress response pathways in cells. Uh, and several of those pathways are exactly the same as the pathways engaged by exercise and fasting. So what you're saying also, because I, I like to use curcumin in my food, I like to like broccoli, that essentially these plants and also herbs are possibly in some ways better than vitamins for brain health and other parts of the immune system. So it turns out, you know, so you go to a health food store, most of the bottles say antioxidant, right. large font, and it turns out that uh, emerging evidence suggests it's not good to swamp your cells with 
a free radical scavenging chemical that is a chemical that directly squelches the free radicals. And the reason is, for example, if you bathe cells in vitamin E, then those cells, what we call downregulate or decrease their intrinsic defenses against oxidative stress because they're not being exposed to oxidative stress. Moreover, turns out free radicals themselves, certain free radicals in cells, superoxide, for example, are signaling molecules that affect gene expression in ways that help the cells uh, cope with stress. So exactly what you were getting at there, um, my own opinion, based on my knowledge of the field, is that it's not good to swamp your cells with vitamin E or vitamin A or... I'm going to toss out something because, you know, um, as I said, I try to draw from a lot of different researchers. And one of the people I thought was one of the most brilliant researchers of all time is Linus Pauling. And, uh, you know, yeah. he's a known biochemist. And I think really one of the forerunners in, in some ways of the holistic movement. And he was a, actually a, quite a strong believer in high doses vitamin C and certain other vitamins um, which he felt were immune boosting. Do you think that some of his work would be disputed now, or do you think it's, you know, just a... Yeah, uh, yeah, I think so. There, for example, the the common cold, there's been multiple studies showing that uh, taking high doses of vitamin C does not attenuate the cold, you know, the duration of the cold and so on. And um, certainly, you know, vitamin C is fine. I, I think uh, there's certain processes in the body that need it. But from the standpoint of the, the antioxidant standpoint, I think not. Well, let me ask you this. I have to throw in some grandma research here. I think it was even in your book or another one that maybe cited you. You know, the old myth, feed a cold, which we tend to think of as a virus immune thing, is good because it helps the glucose and starve a fever where starving, you know, not eating when you have a bacterial infection is actually better to kill it off. Is that, is that still good advice? Well, that's an excellent question, Dean. To my knowledge, I'm not aware of any studies where someone has looked at, you know, done a controlled study where oh, well, what you have to do is random. I'll put that source out because I want you to look at that because I, I did pull it from, it wasn't from your book, but it was from another one. I But I thought they were like, essentially citing again a lot of your work which is the you know the backbone of so many people as you can imagine like they they've used this as almost like you know the trampoline effect they've taken your work and then try to extrapolate uh but again i don't know how yeah. as rigorously as well, you have yeah so the, the the scientific rationale to think that starving of fever might be good fevers are caused by bacterial infection or viral and you know those cells use glucose as an energy source. And so, and this relates to cancer as well. Cancer cells tend to use glucose and can't use ketones Interesting. at all or Interesting. very well. Yeah. So the idea is that if you keep glucose levels as low as possible, they can't drop too low, but low normal range, uh, it may be the antibiotics or the anti-cancer drugs may be 
more effective. In- right. That's what some people have, have, again, clinicians are pointing out, which, you know, again, you know, like so, what's so difficult is that some of these patients sometimes are on chemotherapy or radiation, so they're struggling already to hold their nutritional value. Uh, it's, yeah. it's complicated. And, and there, there are multiple studies in various cancer patients going on as we speak with intermittent fasting while they're getting chemo or radiation therapy. Yeah, they're doing a lot in Germany. Again, this Dr. Mickelson, I think I mentioned to you, he wrote this book called The The Nature Cure and Longevity Plan. I think he's a very reputable researcher and, you know... Holy and in the States, too. There's, there's yes, multiple doing, trials yeah. in the United States. Yeah. All right, so I'm going to ask you another little sort of myth. You know, we know that in Okinawa, Japan, it's considered one of the blue zones where people, they have the highest, one of the highest degrees of centenarians. And there, this is the only Japanese that I know, Harahachi Bonmi, which I hope I said that well, says, eat until you're about 80% full. Seemed to make sense, you know, as far as, in, in, again, with your work and uh, even if you're not fasting, just to not eat till you're, you know, about to explode? Well, yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, before you sit down to eat, decide how much you're going to eat and don't eat any more, I think is a practical way to do it. All right. One more last little myth thing. What about the eat breakfast like a king, lunch like a prince, and dinner like a pauper? Is that in general good advice? Or? My quote on that is, from an evolutionary perspective, breakfast is the least likely meal. Right. Think about that. Right. Yeah. Socially, too. Most of us eat up by ourselves. Yeah, that's true. I want to go back to one other. This is really important too, because I, I think it, you know, because we it touches on a couple of things. What's the best diet? The keto, the Mediterranean diet. But you know, one of the things that I've heard in a couple of places, and this was also from this Dr. Mickelson's book too. He's not too big on fish, because he's worried. You know, and again, this goes back to your um, whole idea with hormesis. He's worried that the heavy metals such as mercury that are in, unfortunately, so much of the fish, are too damaging to the immune system. And not worth it, even though they have the omega threes. And I know, again, in your background as a neuroscientist, you know, we believe for a long time, you know, omega threes are good for your brain. You know, we used to always say fish is the brain food. What's your take on that? What would you recommend to people who like fish, like I do? I like to have it like once a week. Is that okay? Uh, well, so what happens is that the higher you go up the food chain from small fish like sardines and then up to bigger fish the more mercury gets concentrated. So if you're going to eat wild fish, maybe the smaller fish are better from a mercury standpoint. Uh, Or there's now a lot of fish farms businesses, and my understanding is that, you know, the mercury is in the the ocean, essentially. And so if you have uh, these people who are farming the fish, their fish in theory should have lower mercury levels. But do you, so do you think fish is okay to have? I mean, if you have it even once a week? Or yeah, yeah. You do? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, fish is great. You do? That's okay. my opinion. Okay. So as far as even from the hormesis standpoint, you know, it's, you know, whatever, it's fine. Okay. Mercury is a big concern. It's, you mentioned the immune system, but perhaps as sensitive as the brain to mercury. Oh, good point having ad- adverse effects on the brain. Yeah. I mean, you could, right. We know, we know patients that, you know, unfortunately, I think even Dr. Oz, he mentioned on his TV show one time, you know, he looked like he's a strapping, healthy guy. He became quite ill. They didn't know why at first. He was very fatigued, irritable. 
And it turned out his mercury levels were through the roof because he was eating, even in the sardines, he was eating them like massive portions. He's a big guy. He was a former football player, he said, you know, that he had really high levels of mercury. It's an N of one, so we got to yes. be a little yes, that's true. cautious. I always like to put people on the spot. Do you have a sort of a personal, for all of your research, you know, all of us as doctors and, and we're involved in research, we tend to say, well, this seems to be working. I better do this on myself. Do you have a specific routine that you, from all of your research, that you're trying to do, uh, you know, adapt? Are you a vegetarian? Are you pescatarian? I don't eat breakfast. And then right now I've got an injury, so I'm not exercising. But I, you know, when I'm well physically, then I work out like midday and then eat between say two and seven or one and seven depending and my diet is vegetables fruits beans nuts some fish yogurt i do eat whole grains i'm there's actually quite a bit of good scientific evidence that whole grains are healthy what would you say is a whole grain what what do you mean by whole grain just like pin you down is this bread we're talking about or like whole wheat bread? No, whole, whole grains that haven't been processed. So you take the oat kernel or the wheat kernel and you eat it without buying uh, breads that have been the... I mean, so like you sprinkle oat bran or whatever, wheat bran or something on top of your... I just eat a, eat a bowl of oatmeal. Oh, okay. Okay. It sounds like you're not eating red meat, though. So you're... you're... But rarely. Yeah. I ate some chicken... Some chicken. Okay. All right. No, this is good for the... Eggs. Eggs occasionally. Occasionally. Okay. Yeah. Because eggs supposedly with the choline is supposed to be good for brain health, and obviously people have to watch their cholesterol yep. to some degree. One last thing I want to just ask you before we conclude, too. You know, fasting, and, you know, time-restricted fasting obviously is a little bit easier, skipping a meal. Actual fasting, which I've done, as I mentioned earlier, on religious holidays, is tough. I <laughs> I can't do a lot in those days I'm not eating. I'm not really... I can't say I'm 100%. Is there a certain way, because I've seen some of the books, that they say it's important to transition into a fast and also to be careful transitioning out of a fast. Do you have any experience or recommendations on that so people do it properly? Because I know, I mean, I know the worst thing you can do is after a fast because you're, you're like, oh, my God, you have that first bite. And yeah. I, I've done this myself, too. And then all of a sudden you just yeah. you gorge yourself so almost to make up for the last 24 hours. And you often tend yeah, to not feel well. Yeah, it's important to transition into an intermittent fasting regimen. And as I mentioned, if you're going to do daily time-restricted feeding, you can, over a period of months, compress the time window you eat each day. If you want to try the, it's called the 5-2 intermittent fasting approach, where two days a week you eat only about five 600 calories on those two days, then you may want to start out just do one day a week or or eat a 1,000 calories on one day and do that for a month. and then thousand calories on two days and then eventually go to 500. Yeah. So I just like exercise. It takes a while for your, all your metabolic systems, including your brain and your psychological um, frame to adapt. Doctor, he's a researcher at Scripps. I'm blanking on his name. Sacha Honda, I think his name is, you know, he's the one who's promoted a lot of this time with his research as well. And he claims also that even by eating probably about just the same amount of calories on a time-restricted, you know, because of that window, you actually will lose weight. Has that been your experience as well, too, or do you really still have to cut the calories? I know Sachin Panda very well. He's oh, a colleague Panda, of mine. Right. He's at the, at the Salk Institute. Salk, right. I'm sorry. They, yes, Salk script. Hmm. Well, they're right right next to each other. Oh, okay. Sorry, <laughs> my confusion. 
he's shown in mice that you can, if you if you put mice on a, high, a diet high in saturated fat, they become obese. If you put them on the same diet but only give them the food, them the food during an eight-hour time window, every 24 hours, they consume the same amount of food as the mice that have food for 24 hours, but they don't get nearly as fat. So that's what he's shown in animals that there's been no formal study in. No, humans. okay, that's really important to bring out because he does get. I mean, he wrote a book on the circadian rhythm with this and. You know, I again, I like to always really, I don't want to give false hope to patients, but some things that do seem to make sense, you know, why not go ahead and do it? We're going to be wrapping up, but I, what I want to bring out for the listeners as we finish up is that, you know, sometimes it does take decades for new treatments to gain acceptance. And a lot of times it's too late for many people currently stricken with a disease such as Alzheimer's or Parkinson's. But I really hope that today's discussion gives people and families hope in preventing some of these horrible diseases and that something as simple as avoiding one meal a day or doing an intermittent fasting, which is hard, but might have tremendous benefit. So I want to thank Dr. Mark Matson for coming and giving his time today and his knowledge to make all of us happier. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review and stay tuned for an upcoming podcast where I am interviewing Dr. Mitch Gann on more anti-aging tips. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to The Smartest Doctor in the Room with host Dr. Dean Mitchell. You can continue this conversation on Instagram at Dean Mitchell MD, Facebook at Mitchell Medical Group, or at DeanMitchellMD.com.